Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, this morning we are starting Luke chapter 19. And in Luke chapter 19, we're going to see three very important things about Jesus. First, we're going to see that he is the Savior that seeks and saves the lost. Second, he is the master who rewards the faithful. And third, he is the king who enters triumphantly. This morning, we're going to look at the first two things that we see here in chapter 9 about Jesus. And then next week, we're going to focus on this third thing, the triumphal entry, a very significant key point uh, in Jesus's ministry. But all three of these things are very significant, very important. And I think we can learn a lot, but also apply a lot to our lives. And so let's start with looking at this first important thing we see about Jesus, that he is the Savior who seeks the lost. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, says this, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a certain man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be with a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to start noting verse 10. We see in Jesus' life through the Gospels, there are statements that are made that are quite profound that sum up certain aspects of Jesus' ministry. And this is one of those there in verse 10, what Jesus declares to us. Notice what he says, For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is one of those statements when we started the book of Luke. I said, you know, if you want to kind of sum up Luke with uh, just a a one sentence or one verse summary, this is one of those verses that really uh, do that. It's a perfect verse that um, sums up this whole thing. This is Jesus' mission. This is his purpose. I have come to seek and to save people who are lost. And you know, we see a wonderful example of this truth in verses 1 through 9 in this example of this man named Zacchaeus and his encounter with Jesus. And I'm sure those of you who grew up in the church, you're familiar with Zacchaeus and him being short and climbing up in a tree. But I think we're going to see some important things about this encounter and this man and his willingness to see Jesus, but more significantly, Jesus seeking out a lost man in order to save him. And and before we look at this very important encounter, I want us to make sure we understand something about being lost. And first and foremost, what does it mean? 
uh, what is that to be lost? You know, we say that in the Christian world oftentimes of people who are lost, but, but what are we referring to? What do we mean by that? Well, I think a great verse that describes what it means to be lost is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. And we could go into a lot of different things, but I think this is a good summation of it. It says this, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ultimately, if you sum up what it means to be lost, it is to be without Christ. It is to be without God. That is the, the, the reality of that. And because you are without Christ, because you're without God, you're without hope. You have no hope. You have no hope of your future, not only in this life, but you have no hope of the life to come, eternal life. And so really those who are lost are those who don't have Christ and don't have hope. But you know what? There, there are a lot of people who think everything's good. They don't recognize their loss. They don't realize that because I don't have Jesus, I'm lost. And, you know, I'm sure uh, it recently happened to me. I'm sure that um, you can relate. Uh, have you ever received wrong directions to get to somewhere? Um, you know, it could be from a person or for recently with me, with my work, it was my phone. Siri gave me the wrong directions. But, um, you know, when you're going to the place that you think you're getting to, you have these directions, you have your destination that you're trying to get to, and these directions that you think are going to get you there, you don't think you're lost. You're following the directions, and you think those directions are taking you to your destination, but the reality is they're not because they're wrong. They're not getting you where you think you're going. They're actually getting you lost. But you go on, and you drive for a while, and it, and it usually takes a while after you've gone all over the place to realize, wait a second, these are wrong directions. They're not getting me to my destination, and now I don't even know where I am. Now I'm lost. I bring that up because there are a lot of people today who have wrong directions to heaven. They have a wrong concept of what it means to get there. How do I get to heaven? How do I get salvation? Many people believe, well, if I'm just religious, that's going to get me to heaven. Or through my good works, that's going to get me to heaven. And so they have these wrong directions, but they're going through life without a recognition they're lost. Because they think, well, I have the directions. I have the way to get to heaven. I, I'm doing you know, the works. I, I'm going through these religious rituals. And, and so therefore, I'm going to get there. But the reality is they're wrong directions. The reality is the Bible is very clear. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. And so if they haven't gone down that path, they're never going to get to where they think they're going. They're lost, and sadly, they don't even know it. Now, there are those who are lost that are very clear that they're lost, and there are those who are lost that don't have a clue. And I think the ones who don't have a clue actually are the harder ones to reach because they don't see a need. They don't see a problem. Oh, I'm religious. I, don't, I, I got it good. I'm going to heaven. Oh, I do good works. I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. No, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, and you are lost. So hopefully we understand what lost means and we understand who are lost. But one other thing before we look at this encounter that I think it's important for us to recognize and note are what are the effects of being lost? Because I talk to people all the time and it's like, well, I don't care. You know, what's the big deal if I don't have Christ or I'm lost as you, you know, say it? You know, how does that affect me? Why should I care that I'm lost? What's the big deal? How does that, you know, have any impact on my life? Well, it's going to have a huge impact, not only on your life now in this present world, but more significantly on the life to come once you die. You know, in this life, and we could spend a whole sermon on the impact that Jesus has when you accept him, because he impacts every relationship you have in life. 
When you don't have Jesus, you're a worse husband, you're a worse spouse, you're a worse parent, you're a worse friend, you're a worse family member, you're a worse coworker. He impacts your relationships. Once you accept Jesus, it makes you a better person, a better father, mother, husband, wife, parent, child, friend. You know, he comes and he changes us. So not only does it impact this life, but more significantly, when you don't have Christ and you die, the Bible is very clear. You are going to stand before him as judge. And he is going to judge your sin, and the consequence of your sin is hell. How does this affect me if I'm lost? If you die in your lost state, the effect is severe. You will be in hell for all eternity. You know, for many people, they don't get that. And that's why they're like, well, what's the big deal about being lost? Oh, so I don't go to church, or so I don't do this. You know, they don't realize the significance of the effect that it brings to their life. And that's why we as believers who are called to proclaim the gospel, need to make sure we share the whole gospel. Not just the good news, but also the bad news. The bad news being that everyone's a sinner. And until we accept Christ, that sin has a consequence. God will judge that sin in hell. And when we don't share that, then there's like, well, well, who cares if I'm lost then? Okay, well, Jesus is loving and great. That's nice. But when they don't recognize my being lost has eternal consequences, there's not much of a willingness or desire to change and seek out their Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the wonderful news that this section brings us is that no one has to be lost because Jesus came specifically to seek and to save those who are lost. God has a desire to save lost people, so no one has to be lost. They choose to be. God says, here, I've done it all. I have it. I'm offering it to you. If you will just accept me, you no longer have to be lost, but I leave it with you. I don't force you to choose me, but I've given you the way that you can go from being lost to found, that you can go from your sin to to salvation. Well, now hopefully we understand what it means to be lost, those who are lost, the effects of being lost. Now let's look at a lost man, a man by the name of Zacchaeus and the encounter that he has with Jesus who seeks to save him. Luke starts off in verse 1 telling us that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, the last time Luke told us Jesus' location was back in chapter 17, and he said Jesus passed through Samaria. If you remember, the the starting point is that Jesus is coming from Galilee, and he's traveling south to Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, he has to go through, as you can see on the map, Samaria. And as we noted back in 17, most Jews didn't go through Samaria. They went around it because they had such prejudice towards the Samaritans. But Jesus goes through it for a specific purpose, to meet a woman at a well so that he could share with her. He went for a person. But now if you look at the map again, you'll notice that Jericho is quite out of the way. It's not like he had to go through Jericho to get to Jerusalem. He had to go way out of the way to go to Jericho and then back to Jerusalem. But Jesus does this. Jesus goes out of his way to Jericho. And I believe for the same reason he went through Samaria. There was an individual that he was seeking. There was a person that he wanted to encounter. There was someone that he wanted to save. And that person's name is Zacchaeus. I think this is a great example to us who are called to share the gospel, who are called to seek people with the gospel. You know, the reality is sometimes we just want it to be something that's easy and natural and everyday life stuff where it's like, oh, that person will just come to me and they'll ask me about Jesus and I'll share the gospel with them and and then I'm willing to do it. Well, that's nice if that happens and someone comes to you and inquires of you and hopefully then you will answer their questions. But the usual reality is we need to go seek them. And sometimes that means going out of our way. 
doing things that, you know, take us out of our comfort zone and, and, and pursuing someone who perhaps, you know, is a little bit uh, of an inconvenience to go after. Now, there are a couple important things here we're told about Zacchaeus. First of all, he is a chief tax collector. And we've noted several times here in the Gospel of Luke how despised tax collectors were because they were thieves. The Roman government told tax collectors and tax collectors only, this is how much money you have to raise to pay the taxes, and anything you get on top of that, you keep. But the problem is the people didn't know what they had to pay. So tax collector comes and says, oh, well, you owe 50 grand. What do you mean I owe 50 grand? What's the taxes? I don't, don't worry about that. You just give me 50 grand. Uh, and so they could rip you off really bad or not. And usually you could tell how much of a ripoff artist a tax collector was by how much money they had. And we're told that Zacchaeus was rich. Uh, so obviously he probably took advantage of people and lied to them and stole from them regularly. But not only are we told that he is the tax collector, but notice he is the chief tax collector. So here's the head guy. I mean, tax collectors are hated as it is, but I mean, it's like the IRS, and now you got like the top guy in the IRS where people kind of the face of it. So here's kind of the face of the tax collectors there in Jericho, and you know, here's this guy who would have been despised by everyone. Well, Jesus enters Jericho, and we're told that Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. But Zacchaeus has a problem. As usual, when Jesus is traveling, there's this huge crowd of people around Jesus, and we're told that Zacchaeus is a short guy. Uh, We don't know how short, but he's short of stature, so short that he can't see over people's heads in order to see Jesus. And so he could have just given up and said, oh, well, you know, I'm never getting through that crowd, especially with a bunch of people who don't like me anyway. But he decides, you know what, I'm going to see Jesus. And we're told that he runs to a sycamore tree, Before the crowd, like the crowd's heading in a certain direction, he runs past them. He climbs this tree in order to see Jesus. And for those of you in Sunday school, when you were kids, you probably, you know, drew and, you know, colored in pictures of Zacchaeus climbing this tree. But, but, uh, you know, sometimes, especially when we're young, we don't think of the significance of what he did in that culture. Because rich men in that culture usually displayed their riches through their garments, what they would wear. And it would, you know, oftentimes purple was a sign of royalty. And you would have wealthy garments if you were a wealthy person. Uh, and you would wear these robes that would go down to your feet. And the bottom line is you didn't run around in these nice wealthy garments. Kind of like today, you don't see too many businessmen in real expensive suits running down the street. You know, that, that's not just, that's not the attire that you wear for that. And even more significant, you definitely don't see businessmen in expensive suits climbing up trees. Uh, And so here you got a guy who does two things that a wealthy man wouldn't do at that time. You wouldn't see someone running down the street, most likely in their nice clothes, and you definitely wouldn't see them climbing up trees. That's something that kids would do. I bring that out because, you know what, to see Jesus, Zacchaeus says, you know what, I'm not going to worry about the fact that this might be below my dignity. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to run past this crowd. I'm going to climb this tree so I can get a glimpse of this man that I'm hearing so much about. Alexander McLaren was a great Scottish pastor, and he said this, I wish there were more of us who did not mind being laughed at if only what we did helped us to see Jesus. Let me say that again. I wish there were more of us who did not mind being laughed at if only what we did helped us to see Jesus. You know, I think this is a sad reality within our culture today, and I think especially with younger people, because the the culture 
does not like Christianity, makes fun of Christianity. And so for you to follow Jesus, for you to even want to find out about Jesus, you have to face this ridicule. You have to face people who are probably going to make fun or, or say some belittling things to you. And oftentimes that is a barrier, not just for young, but for old as well, that, you know what, I'm not willing to humble myself. I'm not willing to allow that ridicule to come for the purpose of me seeking to find out more about Jesus or if I already know him, to follow him. You know, I experienced this in high school I've shared a bit of my testimony before, but the summer before my senior year is when I committed my life to personally following Christ. And, you know, before that, my high school days were, you know, all my friends were non-Christians. We all partied together. And all of a sudden, there was a big change in my life, not in their life. And when I came for my senior year, I made a, a commitment to, you know what, there was a Bible study that was at our school. There was a prayer meeting. I said, you know, I'm going to be a part of these things. You know, Jesus is now going to be a priority in my life. And, you know, I got a lot of flack from that. You know, my friends before, you know, they would laugh and they'd make fun of me. And, you know, why are you doing that? And why don't you want to come get high with us anymore? Or now you're going to get high on Jesus. And, you know, there was all these different things of, you know, how silly that you are making this commitment to do that. And there was a point where it was a struggle where it was like, you know, am I going to choose Christ or am I going to choose to, you know, be in the good books with my friends here? And I finally just said, you know what, you can say what you want. It's not going to stop me from my pursuit of Christ. It's not going to stop me from learning more about him and, and standing up for him. And, um, but, you know, I think if you're concerned what the world's going to think about your relationship with Jesus, that's going to be a huge hindrance either to coming to him originally or to following him after you do. And so we need to recognize the person we should be concerned about is what does God think? What does he think about my relationship with him? Not what is this world considering and what does this world think? That we shouldn't be embarrassed for being a Christian, but we should be proud that we have a great relationship with Jesus. So here's Zacchaeus. He humbles himself. He runs ahead of this crowd. He climbs this tree. And as the crowd gets closer, all of a sudden, Jesus is under this tree. And Jesus looks up, and he says something to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I'm sure this was a huge blessing to Zacchaeus. First of all, Jesus knew his name. Zacchaeus never met Jesus before. He's just inquiring about him. He's up in this tree, and Jesus stops, and he looks at them, and says, doesn't say, hey, you up there, I'm coming to your house. He says, Zacchaeus, I know who you are. I'm calling you by name. And perhaps the only person who said Zacchaeus in a nice way was his mom for a long time, being a chief tax collector. I'm sure most people who spoke about him did not speak about him in a positive sense. But then Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. But, you know, I think it's great... Uh, John chapter 10, verse 3 says this. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I love John chapter 10 as speaking of Jesus the good shepherd, but one of the things that it reveals about Jesus the good shepherd is he knows his sheep by name. You know, you're not just a number to Jesus. You're not just a face in the crowd of the earth. You're someone that he wants to have an intimate relationship with. You're someone that he knows your name, and he wants time with you. So Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. Make haste. Come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner today. Now, Zacchaeus could have been like, oh, no, no, no. You can't come to my house, Jesus. It's all messed up or whatever. Zacchaeus gets down. He's excited for the opportunity to have Jesus come to his house. 
You know, I think this is something that's very important to note is Zacchaeus was, in the eyes of the people there, a complete outcast, the worst of the worst when it comes to the sinners and the people that they despise at that time. And those are the people that Jesus went out to. Those are the people that Jesus reached out to. Those are the people that Jesus was accused of. You know, why do you hang out with tax collectors and sinners? You know, we look at the church world today, and would we be guilty of that? Why are we spending time with sinners? Because oftentimes it's just, well, well, why are we just hanging out with other Christians and never really engage in those who don't believe what we believe? Jesus spent a majority of his time with lost people with the purpose of trying to reach them with the truth of who he was. Well, Zacchaeus has this wonderful encounter where Jesus seeks him, Jesus spends time with him, and notice in that conversation, I don't know what happened at the dinner time, but Zacchaeus has a true transformation change. Notice what takes place as he responds. Well, actually, before that, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. You know, it's just not Zacchaeus that Jesus says, hey, I want to come to your house. Jesus in Revelation uses his example of, I'm standing at the door of your life and I'm knocking. And I want you to let me in. But are you going to do that? Now, this is actually used oftentimes as an evangelistic verse where it's like, hey, Jesus is knocking at the door of your life. Will you accept him? But you know what? In the context, Jesus is writing to the churches. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, to you believers, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Are you going to let me into your life? Because the reality is, even after we accept Christ, we still have to say, here is my life completely for you to come in and take over. And sometimes you say, oh, yeah, Jesus, come in. I have this nice room all set up for you. Here's the living room. It's Jesus' room. Just don't go beyond that. Don't go look in the bedrooms. Definitely don't go look in the closets. Because these are areas I don't want you to go. I don't want you to see. I don't want you to have control over. And then as we mature, we say, okay, well, well now you can have this room. And now you can have this room. But ultimately, Jesus says, you know, I, I want every area of your life. You don't need to hide it from me. I already know what you're doing. I already know the sins that are there. I already know your issues. I want to come in, and I want to clean it out. I want to help you change. I want to help you grow. But he doesn't kick the door down. He doesn't force us to allow him to do that. He just knocks. Are you willing to let me in this room? Are you willing to let me come and clean this area of your life up? I want to do it, but I want you to invite me to do it. So Zacchaeus responds to this invitation And he has this great experience with Jesus. But, you know, there's a group of people that's not too happy. Verse 7. But when they saw it, speaking of the crowd that was around, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Several times this accusation has been thrown at Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 5, the scribes and the Pharisees said basically the same thing. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responded back in chapter 5, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The scribes and Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the sinful people that were right around them. The sinful people as religious leaders that they should have been seeking to reach out to, they just shunned. 
Jesus went to those people, went to those lost people, seeking to reach them, seeking to help them come to know who he is. And he got ridiculed by the religious leaders. He got blasted by them. Why do you spend time with the chief tax collector, this horrible sinner? Why are you going to his house? You know, we as Christians need to be very careful not to respond to those who are lost like the Pharisees. Not to see them as someone that we despise and want to keep away from, but to see them as people who are lost just like we used to be lost. The only real difference between us and the lost world is that we have accepted Christ and they haven't. You know, we we kind of think, oh, we're so much better, we're so much greater. The reality is we have Jesus, they don't. And we need to go share Jesus with them so that they can have him as well. We need to welcome them into our church, welcome them into our life, share with them the good news of what Jesus has done. Be willing to befriend them. Be willing to reach out to them. Well, verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, Lord, I have given half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus, and we see a true repentance in his life. Notice what he says to Jesus, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. The thing that people hated about tax collectors is they were thieves. I'm taking things from you with false accusation, saying, you owe me this much when you don't really but I'm the only one who knows what you owe, so I'm going to tell you whatever I tell you. So Zacchaeus was guilty of stealing from people, taking from them more than he should have with taxes. And he realizes that, and he repents of that, and he goes to an extreme. He says, you know what, if I've done that to anyone, first I'm giving half of everything I have to the poor as a demonstration of my repentance, but I'm going to go beyond that. Anyone, which probably was a long list, that I have ripped off, I'm going to give back to them four times what I've taken from them. Which is quite significant because if you look at the law, if you stole from someone, you only had to give them twice what you took from them. Four times is double that. And so he's saying, you know what, I'm willing to go to this great extreme in order to demonstrate the fact that I am truly repentant. And Jesus responds to him saying, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus got saved because he believed in Jesus and repented of his sins And he demonstrates that through this act of repentance. And I think that's an important thing that there should be a change in your life. And sometimes that change is slower than other people. But, you know, when you come to Jesus, something needs to change. You know, and you usually see this outward demonstration in our actions and our words of now that I've accepted Christ, there's a change in my life. And if there is no change, you know, you really have to say, have you really come to know Christ and accept him and follow him? And he now dwells within you because As we see here, and you see through the book of Acts, when people come into a relationship with Jesus, there is a change in their life. And Jesus ends this encounter really telling us, why does he go to a guy like Zacchaeus, this notorious sinful person in the town? Well, as we noted at the beginning, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came precisely for a guy like Zacchaeus. I came for a guy like him that all the religious leaders are rejecting. He is lost, and that's the kind of person I have come for. God has a huge heart for lost people. 
He seeks them. He does everything he can to reach out to them. And one of the ways that God desires to reach lost people, and sometimes I wonder why he chooses to do it so often when he could probably use angels or others more effectively, he chooses to use us. He's given us the command to go into the world and preach the gospel, us the command to take the good news of what he's done to the lost world. And he says, you know what? I have a heart for lost people, and I want those who follow me to have that heart as well and to go out and reach people who are lost with the gospel. You know, one of the last things that Jesus said before he ascended back into heaven into Mark, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This wasn't a suggestion. This was a command. My followers, I want you to go into the world and I want you to preach the gospel to everyone. You know, our vision here at Cross Connection is fourfold. First, to save the lost. Second, to equip the saved. Third, to serve the lost and save. And finally, to send the equipped. But you know, if we're going to fulfill the first part of the vision to save the lost, then we need to have that heart that Jesus has for lost people and a willingness to go and reach out and share the gospel with them as Jesus did. You know, George McLeod, a famous pastor, says something I thought was quite compelling about this passage. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. At a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan, they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's people ought to be, and what church people ought to be about. His whole point was we we keep bringing the cross back into the church and the gospel is only shared in the church when we as the church should be going out to those who are lost and declaring the good news of the gospel to them. Now, it doesn't mean you don't invite people, you don't bring people, but it's doing both. So Jesus sought to reach lost people with the gospel and so should we. The first important point or important thing that we see about Jesus here in this chapter is that he came as a savior to seek and save the lost, and that is something that we should be doing as well. You know, next Sunday we're going to have a very significant service. It's going to be a service that's finished by baptisms, but not only baptisms, but some of the people getting baptized, getting to share their testimony of what God has done to change their life. And it's a great opportunity for people who are lost to come and see that and experience that and hear that. I will definitely share the gospel clearly during that service, give people an opportunity to accept that during that service. And so I'd encourage you, if you know some unsaved people, invite them out or bring them even better. uh, And let's see what the Lord will do through that. Well, now we're going to look at the second important thing that Luke shares with us about Jesus in this chapter, starting in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Jesus has been traveling from Galilee. It's been chapter after chapter after chapter. We've seen so much of what's happened. Now he's right in the midst of coming to Jerusalem, like going through the gates. We're going to look at that next week, the triumphal entry. But he's really close to Jerusalem now. He's almost got to the destination that he's going to. And as he nears the city, 
His disciples and other followers are anticipating something to happen. They expect that Jesus is going to establish God's kingdom immediately. When we get to Jerusalem, he is going to establish his earthly kingdom. That is what they were waiting for. That is what they were believing. That is what they were hoping for. And so they thought, Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem, not for the purpose of dying on the cross, but for the purpose of establishing his earthly kingdom. They were waiting for that. They were expecting that. And Jesus knew that wasn't why he was there. He's told them, but they went over their head. And so now he shares a parable with them to help them understand two things. First of all, I'm not establishing my earthly kingdom yet. And secondly, here's what I want you to do while you're waiting for me to establish my earthly kingdom. Because it's not going to happen immediately like you think. And when I'm gone, which I will be, I want you to do something specific. So let's see what this parable has to say and what we can learn from it, starting in verse 12. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. In this parable, and I haven't finished it yet, we just started, Jesus has three different groups that represent three different groups of people. First, there is the nobleman or the master, and that's a picture of Jesus himself. Second, there are the servants who are a picture of believers in Jesus. And third, there are the citizens or the enemies of the nobleman, and that is a picture of those who are lost, those who have rejected Jesus, those who, as it says here, want nothing to do with the master. So Jesus starts off this parable saying, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So the nobleman is leaving his kingdom to go to a far country to receive uh, for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to return and rule as king. The nobleman is a picture of Jesus. He's about to leave. His followers don't recognize it. He's about to go to heaven, and he's going to come back to earth to establish his kingdom, to rule and to reign. Now, before the nobleman leaves, he calls his servants to himself. And he delivers to his servants ten minas, one to each of them. And he says, do business till I come. Now, this parable is very similar to the parable of the talons in Matthew chapter 25. But um, both parables have a different focus. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 15, it says, And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, And immediately he went on a journey. So it's a similar concept of the person leaving, going on a journey, coming back. And while he's gone, he's given them these talons. Okay, you got five, you got two, you got one. But the the focus of the talons is being faithful with the abilities that God has given you. And notice it even specifically says abilities, because the reality is God has given us different abilities, and that's why you see different talents. Some people have more abilities, like the one who got five. Some people have less, like the one who has one. But it's not about how many you have. It's about how faithful you are with what God's given you. And so the whole focus of the parable is while I'm gone, be faithful with the abilities that I have given to you. But the parable of the minas is a little bit different. The focus is different. And and most commentators believe that as Jesus gives 10 servants, one mina each, all having an equal portion, he's not speaking about ability, but especially within the context, is speaking about the gospel. 
You see, some gifts that God gives, as we saw in Ephesians, are given by God. Uh, He distributes them in his own will. Some people get more than others. But universally among Christians, there are specific things that are given, like the gospel. All of us have it, and all of us are commanded to use it. It's not like, well, you get more of the gospel than me. It's a message that all of us are called to share with others. It's something universally given to each believer. And so most commentators agree that since this mina was equally given in the context of things that Jesus is actually speaking about, as I'm gone, I want you to be faithful to represent and share the gospel to others. So Jesus tells us there's another group of people as well. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Note these citizens are people who the nobleman ultimately is over because he reigns in this area, but they're not the servants. They're not the ones that he gave minus to. They're just ones that he's over, just kind of like today. God is over the whole world. He's got power and dominion over the whole world. And there are those who are his servants, who they follow him, who he gives things to, those who believe in him. And then there are those who reject him. And notice what we see with these citizens. They say, we will not have this man reign over us. We want nothing to do with this king. And this is representing the world of people who are lost, who have rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ being king in their life. Well, Let's see how this parable turns out. Verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then he came to the first saying, Master, your miner has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in the very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept and put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that, I might, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him and give it to, the, to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So the nobleman, he goes off, and now he returns, and Jesus is dealing with now as he returns his encounter not only with his servants, but also with those who did not want him. And so he comes to his servants, who he gave a mina each, and he comes to the first servant, and The first servant says, you know what? I I got 10 minus for you. You gave me one, and now I have 10 minus to give back to you, a 1,000% increase. Very, very good. And Jesus responds with, uh, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful and very little, have authority over 10 cities. Because the servant was faithful to turn his one mina into 10 minus, he was given authority over 10 cities in the kingdom of his master, that his master just received. Notice the number of cities the servant is given authority over is in proportion to his faithfulness in what he produced for the master. Oh, you have 10 minus? Well, you get 10 cities. 
The second servant comes and says, Master, your mina has earned five minas. So once again, another good report, 500% increase. You gave me one. I have five now for you. And because he was faithful to turn one mina into five, he's now given authority over five cities. Once again, in proportion to what he was faithful to do. The master gives him faithfulness in his new kingdom. The third servant comes to the master and says, Master, here's your mina. I put it in a handkerchief and I hid it away. The third servant does not have a good report. He did not obey the master's command, which was do business until I come. Taking a mina and putting it in a handkerchief is not doing business. That's doing nothing. Now, the servant tries to excuse his disobedience by claiming he was fearful of the master. I knew you were a strict man. I knew that, you know, you didn't really need me to do business on your behalf because you're so wealthy and you have all this stuff. But the master responds to his servant saying, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. Since you knew I was a strict man, since you knew this about me, you should have at least put my money in the bank that it would have gotten interest. You could have done something with it, but you did absolutely nothing. Fear of me should have caused you actually to do something as opposed to do absolutely nothing. The master rebukes the servant who was disobedient and who was lazy. And then the master says, Take the mina from this guy and give it to the one who has ten minas. For I say to you, everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This minor that was entrusted to the third servant, the master says, take it from him. Give it to the guy who's been most faithful because he's the one who's going to get what I want. He's going to go and use it. Now, the servant wasn't cast out. He remained the master's servant. He was still in the master's house, but he was left with nothing ultimately to oversee in the new kingdom. And I think there's this reality of, you know, what we do in this life, ultimately when we come into eternity, our faithfulness in this life, It's very clear scripturally that what we are going to be over and what we're going to be responsible for in eternity is really based on how we're faithful with the things that God has given us in this life. When you're faithful with what God has given you here, he'll reward you. The more faithful you are, the more responsibility that he'll ultimately give you to be continually faithful with those things. But as we already noted, I think in the context of this, one of the things that Jesus is saying is, you know, are you being faithful with the gospel? Because, you know, we can look at, well, my gift might be different than yours. Are we being faithful with our gifts, which is an important reality as we see in Matthew. But here, are we being faithful to share and preach the gospel as we were commanded to do? So the master has dealt with his servants, and now he's going to deal with his, <coughs> with his enemies. Verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So the master goes away. And remember these people who said, we don't want anything to do with this guy. We don't want him to reign over us. Well, now he comes back. And now he comes back to rule and reign. And those people who didn't want him and those people who rejected him, his response to them is, kill him. And this is a very sad reality of what the Bible speaks about in Jesus' second coming. When he comes, those who stand against him, Those who want nothing to do with him are going to meet him, not as the suffering savior, but the conquering king who is going to wipe out his enemies and rule and reign. Jesus is going to rule over everyone. That's the reality. What we need to ask ourselves is, how is he going to rule over you? 
Is he going to rule as your savior who protects you from his judgment? Or is he going to rule as your judge who judges you for your sin? And the only way that you can have the first is if you accept him. That's how he'll rule over you as your savior because you've accepted him as your savior. But if you say, I want nothing to do with this man, I don't want him to rule over me, it doesn't mean that he's not going to rule over you. It just means he's going to rule over you in a different capacity. He's not going to rule over you as your savior who saves you from your sin. He's now going to rule over you as a judge who has to uh, bring the consequences of your sin upon you. So there are three possible relationships with Jesus when he comes as his conquering king. First, you can reject his rule and be an enemy, but that leads to his judgment. Second, you can accept his rule and be unfaithful with what he has given you to do, but that just leads to loss of reward. Or third, hopefully that we would all choose, you can accept his rule and be faithful with what he's given you, and you will receive his reward. So the main point of this parable is that the kingdom of God is going to be delayed. The disciples are expecting it. They're waiting. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not yet. It's going to happen. I'm going to come and I'm going to rule and reign, but I have to go away to a far place and then I'm going to come back. But the real question is, what are you going to do when I'm gone? See, he's still gone. His disciples had to do this while he was gone. And now we, his disciples, thousands of years later, still have the same challenge. Are we willing to do what he commands us to do while he's gone? Are we willing to do one of the main things, and that is share the gospel with lost people before Jesus returns. So the second important thing we see about Jesus is he is the master who rewards the faithfulness of his servants. So we need to be faithful with what he's given us, especially the gospel. You know, if Jesus came back today, would you be able to say, I have been faithful in sharing the gospel with people? You have one mina. Would you say, I've hit it in a handkerchief? I never told anyone, but, you know, I didn't lose it. I still know it. Here you go. Or you say, you know what? I've been faithful, and and here are people. Here's the fruit of that. Here are people who have accepted it. Here are people that believed it. You know, if you haven't been very faithful in sharing the gospel, there's still time to change. That's the good news. You know what? Today, you can start sharing the gospel. Tomorrow, you can continue sharing the gospel. The day after that, you can continue it. And so even if you haven't been faithful, it doesn't mean that you can't start being faithful today to do what the Lord commands us to do. With both of these two things we see about Jesus, there's a similar challenge, a challenge to follow Jesus' example, to seek and save lost people, to share the gospel with those who are lost, and a challenge to be faithful with the responsibility Jesus has given us to share the gospel. You know, I really think it's important for us, and I want to close doing this because I think, you know, next Sunday could hold some eternal significance to people's lives. It's going to be a time that's great for those who are getting baptized and those getting to, you know, just have that outward demonstration of the inward change that's already taken place and an opportunity to share their testimony with people. But hopefully we're going to see several people here next Sunday who don't know Christ who are in this category of being lost. They have not accepted Jesus as their Savior. And I just want to close this morning taking some time to pray for next Sunday. Pray specifically that the Lord would draw people that are invited. And I encourage you to invite people, especially those who are getting baptized. We have those flyers to invite people. But um, that we would see people come who are lost 
come not only hear from me sharing the gospel, but hear from those getting baptized their own testimonies of what the Lord is doing and to see God do a real work in that. But, you know, and just pray as well for, for those who are being baptized, uh, that the Lord will really do a great work uh, in and through them. So I just want to take some time as a body of believers and just lift up next week uh, and just pray that the Lord would be preparing individuals uh, and be working in people to draw them here uh, for next week. And so uh, if you desire to, to pray uh, about that, I would encourage you to do that, and then I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Thank you.